Good evening, and welcome to Mining the Riches of the Parsha. Tonight is Thursday night, January 13th, 2022. It is the highlight of my week to be able to see all of you here. Thank you for joining. I am grateful to every one of you who is with us tonight. We have the opportunity to be able to study together, to learn Torah together. What could be better than that? In September 2010, news agencies reported a remarkable discovery. Researchers at the U.S. National Center for Atmospheric, Atmospheric Research showed through a computer simulation how the splitting of the Red Sea might have taken place. Now, they used sophisticated computer modeling and they demonstrated how a very strong east wind blowing overnight could have pushed water back at a certain spot, a bend in an ancient river in Egypt, where it is believed that at one time the river merged with a lagoon. So there's this curve, this bend in the river. And the water, by this wind, pushed by this wind, would have the water would have been guided into two separate waterways, and a land bridge, a, a, a piece of land would have opened at the bend, allowing people to walk across the mud flats. And then, as soon as the wind died down, the water would have rushed back in. And the leader of this project, this research project, said when the report was published, the simulations match fairly closely with the account in Exodus. Okay, so now we have scientific evidence to support the Torah's account of the splitting of the Red Sea. But Rabbi Jonathan Sachs points out that there is a fascinating feature of the way the Torah tells this story. So listen carefully to this passage from this week's parsha, the parsha B'Shalach. Vayet Moshe es yado al hayom, Moshe stretched out his arm towards the sea. Vayolech Hashem es hayom beruach kadim azokolalayla. And God caused there to be a strong wind from the east all night long, and it created that where there was sea, where there was water, was land. And the water was on either side of them like a wall, on the right and on the left. Now, if you read very carefully, you'll notice that the passage can be read in two ways. The first way many of us are familiar with, and we've heard it every year, and that is there was a suspension of the laws of nature, a miracle, an unnatural event, supernatural event, and the waters stood literally like a wall on either side. But there is a second way to read the passage. 
And that is that what happened was miraculous not because the laws of nature were suspended. The computer simulation shows that the exposure of that small piece of land could have been the natural outcome of a strong east wind. But what made it a miracle is that it happened just there, just then, when the Jewish people were trapped because the sea was in front of them and Paro's army was coming towards them. There was nowhere else to escape. And all of a sudden, there is this natural phenomenon of this strong east wind that is going to create this passageway. And as soon as the Jewish people go through, the wind dies down and it covers over the Egyptians and the soldiers drown. Now, here is the important difference between these two interpretations, these two ways of reading this passage. The first appeals to our sense of wonder. How extraordinary is it that the laws of nature should be suspended by God to allow an escaping people to go free? It is a story that appeals to our imagination. But the second reading of this passage is remarkable on a completely different level. Because here, explains Rabbi Sachs, the Torah is using irony. What made the Egyptians at that time the most dominant force in the world? What made Paro's army the most mighty in his time? He had the most formidable, the most powerful military technology that existed, which was the horse-drawn chariot. And the Torah tells us that's the army that Paro took with him on this, miss this mission. And horse-drawn chariots are the, are the strongest, the most overwhelming to any enemy, the most fearsome and the most unbeatable. But what happens at the sea is a kind of exquisite poetic justice because there's only one circumstance in which a group of people traveling by foot can escape a highly trained army of charioteers. And that is when the route passes through a muddy area because the people can walk across the mud, but the chariot wheels get stuck in the mud. The Egyptian army following them was not able to go forward and was not able to retreat. And so when the wind drops, they're stuck. The water returns and now the powerful are now powerless while the powerless have made their way to freedom. And this 
second understanding of the narrative has a moral depth that the first version does not. It's a depth that is reminiscent of the passage in Tehillim in Psalms, Psalm number 147. Ma'oded anavim Hashem. God gives courage to the lowly. Mashpil rishoyim ade oretz. And brings the wicked down to the ground. Lo bigvuras hasus yachpatz. God's pleasure is not in the strength of the horse. Lo bakushi here, bashuke hoyitzirta. Nor is God's delight in the legs of the warrior. Rotze Hashem es Yereyav. God delights in those who revere him. Es hamiyachalim lechasto. Those who put their hope in his unfailing compassion. The way that the splitting of the Red Sea is described in the Torah so that it can be read on two very different levels as a supernatural miracle and as a moral tale about the limits of technology when it comes to evaluating the real strength of nations. The story of Jewish history is the story of right over might. We have never been stronger than our adversaries. We have never been a world power. We have never controlled an empire. But we have always excelled and continue to excel in the power of the spirit. Just as Ruach, the physical wind, can part waters and expose land beneath, so Ruach, the human spirit, can expose beneath the surface of a story a much deeper meaning beneath the surface. There's a famous teaching of our rabbis in Pirkei Avos. <clears throat> Ezehu Ashir, who is a wealthy person, Hasameach Bechelko, one who is happy with his share, one who is happy with what he has. So the simple meaning of that is to be satisfied with what you have. Accumulating physical objects can cause us to lose sight of what's really important in life. Abraham Lincoln once said, nearly all men can withstand adversity. If you want to test a man's character, give him wealth. So that is certainly true. But there is a deeper level. And I want to confess that I am guilty of the mistaken notion I'm going to describe for you now. So, has it ever happened to you? It's happened to me. We want something. And we think, if I just get that, I'll be happy. That's all I need. 
I'll be set. Everything will be okay if I just get that and I'm focused on just being able to get that. And then often we are shocked, shocked when after we get it, we're still not happy. How is that possible? How could that be? It's very simple. Because things can never make you happy. Things can be a reason to be happy, but only if we focus on feeling happiness. Happiness is an emotion. It can only come from thinking, never from an object. This is one of the purposes, by the way, that we make a bracha before we enjoy any pleasure in this world, for example, before we eat something. One of the reasons we make a bracha is to get us to focus ourselves on being happy with what we are about to enjoy. Because the pleasure itself can't do it. No matter how delicious the food is, if we don't focus on the pleasure it gives us, it will give us no pleasure. It will give us no happiness. Rabbi Avraham Pam proves this from our Torah portion. Once the Jews start traveling through the desert, they have to eat. And our parsha tells us that God provides the Jewish people with mun, manna, this miraculous food. Every morning they would wake up, they would go out, and it would be lying there, and they would pick it up, and they would take it for that day. Our sages tell us that the mun was the food of angels. It was perfect food, perfectly nutritious, perfectly delicious. Our sages tell us it tasted like whatever you desired. Well, no one desires bad food. It tasted like the best possible food. And yet, in our Parsha, after only a short while, people started to complain. The people were disgusted by the mun. And says Rav Pam, if you don't like mun, you will never like anything. Mun is proof that happiness has nothing to do with having something, no matter how perfect it is. Happiness, explains Rapam, is exclusively dependent on your outlook, on your attitude. People can have everything in the world and be miserable, and people can experience the worst deprivation and yet maintain their sense of happiness. Rapam once said, Everyone looks for the city of happiness, but they fail to realize that the city of happiness is in the state of mind.
That's what the line means. Ezehu Ashir, who is a wealthy person, hasameach, one who takes enjoyment from what he has. It doesn't matter how much or how little. It matters, do you focus on appreciating and enjoying whatever it is that you have? That's when you will be wealthy. But if you do not actively pursue hasameach, feeling the joy of what you have, then whatever possessions you have will never make you wealthy, will never make you happy. Regardless of whether they are many or few, fine or plain, your happiness is dependent on hasameach, focusing on the joy you take from it. But there's one exception. Ezehu Ashir Hasameach Bechelko, who is a wealthy person, one who is happy with what he has, only applies to Gashmias, to physical, material possessions. When it comes to Ruchnias, spiritual pursuits, moral pursuits, we should never be Sameach Bechelko. We should never be happy with what we already have. We should always feel that there is more to do, more to accomplish. Feeling satisfied of your spiritual accomplishments leads to arrogance, certainly not to wealth. We can never stop pushing ourselves to grow in spiritual terms, to grow closer to God. Shabbos, the Sabbath is a day of rest, but it's only a day of physical rest. Spiritually, Shabbos is intended to be a day of challenge. We are to challenge ourselves through prayer, through Torah study, through strengthening our relationships with others, through introspection. It must be a day of advancement. The purpose of the physical rest is to create the opportunity to focus on the spiritual advance. And for that reason, in our Parsha, giving the man this miraculous food, which teaches us how to be happy, is also the occasion for God to command us for the first time to rest on Shabbos in our Parsha, to use the physical rest for spiritual advancement. This is the third piece that I want to share with you tonight. <clears throat> Let's return to the beginning of our Parsha. And it was when the Jews left Egypt, the Torah says, God guided the people toward the Red Sea. 
Vachamushim alu b'nei Yisrael me'eretz Mitzrayim. And with Chamushim, the children of Israel left Egypt. So what is the meaning of this word Chamushim? And what is the significance of this second part of the verse? And with Chamushim, the children of Israel left Egypt. So what's very, very curious is not only the range of different opinions of our sages in how they translate and interpret this word, chamushim. It's not only the range of opinions, but is the nature of how contradictory some of those opinions are one to the other. Rashi says, chamushim means armed. The Jewish people left Egypt protected from enemy attack military strength. Targum Yerushalmi says Hamushim means armed with good deeds. The Jewish people left Egypt with moral armor. Targum Yonason translates Hamushim as related to the word Hamisha, which means five, and says that each family left Egypt with five children. Then Rashi gives a second opinion. And the second opinion in its implication is precisely the opposite of all the previous descriptions of strength and honor and character. This last opinion also understands the word chamushim related to the word chamisha, five. But this opinion says only one in five Jewish adults left Egypt. Four out of every five Jews did not want to leave Egypt and they died during the plague of darkness. Incredibly, 80% of the adult Jews did not merit the exodus from Egypt, and they died in Egypt. According to this, the Jewish people left Egypt a broken nation of survivors. This is certainly a very different image, a very different picture, a very different context for this central narrative, it puts everything in a different light. So what's going on with these disparate interpretations? How does the word chamushim allow itself to be interpreted in so many different ways that are in opposition to each other, that are in contradiction to each other? What does the word chamushim actually mean? So Rabbi Yisrael Salant gives the following approach. If four out of five adult Jews died in Egypt, what happened to their children? Every family that left Egypt 
took their own children, obviously, plus four families of orphans and raised those four families of orphans as their own and cared for them as their own and loved them as their own. In other words, every family left Egypt with five families of children. All of, the all of the opinions of the word chamushim are just telling us different aspects of the same story. And that was the strength and the protection of the Jewish people in the desert. All of the redemption, all of the miracles, starting with the miracle of the splitting of the Red Sea, all of that was earned by this mass outstanding, supreme act of chesed, kindness, and compassion because there is nothing as important to God as taking care of his children, especially his children in need. When you do that, you earn redemption. When you do that, you earn miracles. Israel is a land of miracles. So many different kinds of miracles. Israel is a land where miracles occur. Israel is a land where miracles are necessary just to survive. What makes Israel so miraculous? What makes Israel so special, so unique in the world? So, of course, there are many answers, but permit me to share one that is very personal to me. In January 2003, I had the privilege to visit Israel. My visit that time was overshadowed by the buildup of the U.S. war against Iraq and Iraqi threats to attack Israel. The Israeli government had just announced that if there was an attack and there was a threat of chemical or biological weapons, remember at that time that was the greatest fear, the Israeli authorities would be able to give a warning three minutes in advance of the danger. Everyone in Israel, while I was there, was busy making plans in the event of such an attack. Every floor of every building is required to have a cheder atum, a sealed room, so that wherever you are, if you hear the sirens, you will have three minutes to get into the Cheratum, which the government asserted was enough time. One night of my stay, I was visiting my brother and his family, and he was showing me the preparations he had made in his apartment, and he was explaining all of this 
to his 10-year-old son, Tzvi, my nephew. Now, my nephew Tzvi is very, very smart. And he listened to his father carefully. He thought about it. And then he asked the following question. He said, If I'm at home and the sirens sound, there's a cheder a sealed room. I know what to do. If I'm at school, there's a cheder I know what to do. But what if I'm on the bus going to or from school? The ride on the bus is longer than three minutes. What do I do then? Imagine your child asking you a question like that. That's the kind of emotional pressure and anxiety under which Israelis were living and continue to live today in many parts of Israel. And we need to constantly keep trying to appreciate and feel the depths of that pressure and anxiety. And then there is the other side of the paradox. My brother's answer, which could only be given in Israel, and which is an expression of the intense beauty and sanctity and meaning of Israel. My brother told his son, First, it's very unlikely that will happen, which, thank God, turned out to be the case. But he told his son they will probably not target Jerusalem. And even if they would, there were two defensive missile systems in place to provide protection. But if it does happen that you're on the bus and the siren sounds, there will be an adult, someone, who will take your hand and lead you to safety. And whoever that adult is, your bus driver, a soldier, any man or woman who takes your hand and says, come with me, you go with them and you will be safe. It is an absolute certainty. There is no question that any adult would risk their life to protect any child. And that answer could not and would not be given anywhere else in the world. That is Israel. Vachamushim, armed with that level of kindness, did the Jewish people leave Egypt? Because there is nothing as important to God as taking care of his children. My friends, I want to thank you very much for joining tonight. I want to wish you a great evening and a wonderful Shabbos.
And I look forward to seeing all of you soon in person.